Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, from time to time in local news, you will hear about the not-so-good crime rates uh, here in Winnipeg. Um, while there are many illegal activities going on in our city, uh, theft continues to be a real problem. Uh, for a while, it was catalytic converter thefts done in broad daylight. Some even within our own congregation experienced that. Thankfully, that has gone down. But uh, you also hear about people's vehicles being broken into during the night, or thieves hopping into backyards, taking whatever valuables they can find. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anything stolen from you, or maybe your car broken into, but it can be quite disturbing. Someone breaks into your home or your car, can't help but feel violated. This is my stuff, and someone just took it away. And this is your personal space that someone has gone into, just taken whatever they wanted. So that's the city of Winnipeg. Theft rates are not great. But what about the church? How are the crime rates in the church? Now, that might be a bit of a strange question. Perhaps you've never heard anyone ask that before, but our text this morning kind of leads us in that direction. Did you know it's possible to steal from God? Maybe you've never thought of that before, but it's true. The people of Israel didn't seem to understand that this was possible, but the Lord plainly tells them in this text, you are robbing me the whole nation of you. Now, we will look at this, the specifics of their theft later on in the sermon, but in response to their robbing of God, the Lord calls his people to return to him. They must give up their theft. They must turn to him in repentance and faith. So that brings us to the servant theme this morning, which is this. The Lord calls his people to return to him by, stop their, by stopping their robbing of God. We'll look at, first of all, the call to return to God, and second of all, the call to stop robbing God. So our text begins at chapter 3, verse 6. And there we read, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, there are two ways we could translate this verse. Both of them give us a similar meaning. We could translate it as, I, the Lord, do not change, and you are not consumed, O children of Jacob. That is to say, these two statements side by side should shock Israel. God is the God of justice, as we saw last week from the passage before and his justice does not change. And so according to that unchanging justice of God, Israel should have been consumed by now because of their faithlessness. But by God's unchanging grace, they remain as a nation before him. The second way we could translate it is how the ESV translates it. I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O children of Jacob. That is to say, Israel, you should be very thankful for your unchanging God. 
Because if the Lord changed like the gods of the nations changed, Israel would have been goners a long time ago. However, God remains faithful to His covenant promises and His purposes despite Israel's unfaithfulness. This is how the Lord revealed Himself to Israel, as the unchanging God. He proclaimed His name to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. He was Yahweh. I am who I am. He is who He is, and the Lord will never be anything different. That's why He came to save Israel from slavery to Pharaoh. He was remaining faithful to His promises to Abraham. This is why Israel is not consumed right now. God will carry out His unchanging purposes for His people. And so, Israel should rejoice that their God does not change. And you know, it's the same for us. We should rejoice that God is like this. The Lord is our unchanging God. And so you can be confident, for example, that the God who revealed himself in the Bible, even thousands of years ago, is the exact same God today. You don't need to wonder what God is like At this time in history, he remains the same. There will never be a day when you wake up and you wonder, what will God be like today? How will he be different from yesterday? No, that will never happen. He remains the same. So you can count on him. You can know him as he has revealed himself in the Bible. And this gives us stability in our faith and in our relationship to God. The unchanging God will be true to His Word, true to His promises, just as much today as yesterday and thousands of years ago. So we can know the way of salvation will never change. Indeed, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. We can know that. That will never uh, be changed by God. So God's promises are sure and don't change because God is sure and does not change. He's dependable, faithful, and true. Now, of course, this faithfulness of God also served to highlight the faithlessness of Israel and their fickleness. Although God doesn't change, Israel should have changed their ways. They refused to give up their stubborn, sinful deeds. As the Lord says in verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. They contrasted with the faithfulness of God. And this constant problem plagued Israel throughout its history. How often did they not run after idols? How often did they not forsake the Lord and His laws? And so the Lord says, uh, through Malachi, He declares to Israel, Return to me! Return to me, and I will return to you. God gave uh, this message 
more often in Israel's history. Listen only to what God proclaims in Zechariah 1. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, this is what the Lord of hosts declares, return to me and I will return to you. Don't be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me. So this is not the first time God has sent this message to his people. And this would not be the last time either. We hear the same message in the New Testament as well to the New Testament church. The Holy Spirit declares in James chapter 4, Submit yourselves therefore to God, draw near to God, return to him, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So this message keeps going out to God's people. And what does the Lord mean when he says, return to me and I will return to you? Well, we should be clear what he's not saying. He is not saying that humans make the first move in salvation. Our salvation has its origin in God and in him alone, not in us. But returning to God simply refers to that daily repentance and conversion that all Christians engage in. And why is it called returning to the Lord, return to Him? Well, it's because moving towards sin is always a moving away from God. Right? Moving towards sin is always a moving away from God. That's because sin is completely contrary to God's nature. God and sin are like a light and darkness. And so when we move closer to sin, engage in sin, we are inevitably, at the same time, moving away from God. There's no getting around it. You see, we can't have it both ways. No one can serve two masters, says the Lord Jesus. You can't embrace sin and embrace God at the same time. Well, think of it like a, think of it like this. Think of a boat that's near a dock, but it starts moving away from a dock, and someone sees that boat moving away when it shouldn't, and he tries to hold on to the boat and the dock at the same time. Perhaps you've seen uh, videos of that before. It actually can be pretty humorous. Someone vainly trying to hold on to a boat while they're staying on the dock. The boat's not tied to the dock. It starts moving away from it. Someone on the dock tries to grab a hold of the boat, trying to remain on the dock. They stretch themselves as far as they can, maybe even doing the splits while they're doing it. As the boat keeps going, inevitably, they fall into the water with a giant splash. And that's what it's like to try to embrace sin and embrace God at the same time. It's not going to work. Instead, we need to let go of sin and return to God with all of our heart. Return to me, says the Lord. That means give up your sin. 
Confess your sins to Him. And come to Him. And the wonderful thing is, God will cleanse you from your sin. This is why He gave us Jesus Christ. God knew we couldn't pay for our sins ourselves, but He sent His Son to pay pay them for us. Jesus Christ, He never embraced sin, never tried to hold on to sin. He never walked away from God, His Father. And because He did this His whole life long, He could make that sacrifice that pays for all of our sin, all of our unfaithfulness. And He has. He's done it. So through Jesus Christ, our sins are cleansed and paid for. Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. That means as we come to God in repentance, then fellowship with God is restored. It's renewed. It's refreshed. Think of what happened in the parable of the prodigal son. The younger brother moved away from his father. He went away from his father's house. He went off to embrace a life of sin. But after he hit rock bottom, he came to his senses. And so he decided to return. To return to his father, return to his father's house. And what happened? As he walked the long road back home, he had his doubts about the reception his father would give him. Eventually his father saw him coming back. So what did his father do? He ran as fast as he could to meet his returning son. He welcomed him with open arms and celebrated his return. Their relationship was restored. Joy was inserted in their relationship again. That's what God wants with his people. He wants us to move away from sin. Come to him. Experience wonderful fellowship with him. So let us let go of sin and come to our Father in love. That brings us to our second point. So the Lord called His people to return to Him. But as we've seen in the book of Malachi so far, the discussions between the Lord and His people follow a familiar pattern. And here we see that pattern again. The people respond to God's statement with a question. They ask, well, how shall we return? Israel is seemingly unaware of their sin. Aren't we close by the Lord? Isn't the temple rebuilt here in Jerusalem? We're we're close by God, aren't we? But they are oblivious to the fact that they have been walking away from God by their sin. So they need to return. And so the Lord specifies exactly what he's talking about. There is a certain sin that needs addressing. So he says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? No, I I didn't take any money from God, did I? I didn't go into the temple and steal something. But the Lord says, You are robbing me in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you, 
Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now, we read God's requirements for the tithes and contributions in Numbers 18. The Lord had taken the the Levites from among the people of Israel, and they were God's gifts to the priests, who were also Levites, but also to the rest of the Israelites. And they were given uh, to the Lord to perform the service at the tabernacle and temple on behalf of the rest of the people. And they helped offer up sacrifices and incense. They ensured that everything at God's temple was done according to the law. Now, because God had given them this task, the Levites did not receive their own land inheritance in the land of Canaan. Numbers 18 uh, makes that explicit in numerous points. So this meant the rest of the Israelites would have to support the priests, and Levites. And they would do this by their tithes and contributions. This is what God commanded in in Numbers 18. Listen to what we read there. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and among the people of Israel. They shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. And so we can see that through this relationship, the Lord had set up a symbiotic relationship between the Levites and the rest of the people. What is a symbiotic relationship? Well, maybe you remember that term from science class. Symbiotic relationship is where two parties perform an activity that the other cannot do and with the activity benefiting the other party. And examples of symbiotic relationships abound in nature. Think only of uh, bees and flowers. They exist in a symbiotic relationship. The bees benefit from the flowers by getting food from the flower pollen. The flowers benefit from the bees by getting pollinated by the bees. This was the arrangement of the, the Levites and the rest of the Israelites. The Levites would do the work at the tabernacle for the people, and the people would support the Levites through their tithes. And the same sort of thing is true for the New Testament church today. As I mentioned before in this series on Malachi, there is a priestly aspect to the work of the preachers of the gospel. Now, to be clear, ministers of the gospel no longer offer sacrifices like was done in the Old Testament. We know that. However, the great priestly atonement made by Christ on the cross is applied to Christians through the means of the preaching of the gospel. So that means as the gospel is preached, 
and you believe in Christ through that gospel, the benefits of Christ's sacrifice made 2,000 years ago, it's applied to you. Benefits such as the forgiveness of all of your sins. And so there's a, a priestly character to the preaching of the gospel. And God has likewise placed preachers of the gospel and the local church in a symbiotic relationship. The congregation supports the preachers of the gospel with material supports so that they can devote their time and energy to the ministry of this gospel. The preachers of the gospel, in turn, preach the gospel for the spiritual well-being and ultimately the salvation of the congregation. Listen to how the Holy Spirit describes this in 1 Corinthians 9, and notice how he makes the connection to the Old Testament priesthood. Uh, Paul writes, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So that's the relationship the Lord maintains in the New Testament church. Now, that being said, perhaps some of you may be thinking at this point, well, this must be the preacher's favorite text. He gets to tell the congregation that they need to support him materially. Um, to be clear, this is not about padding the pockets of the preacher. I can assure you that I am honorably supplied by the congregation. Furthermore, Numbers 18 makes clear that the Levites were charged just as much as the rest of the people to make tithes and contributions from the tithes they received. So, they were by no means off the hook in this. But the main point is, remember the reason why the Lord commands this. He wants His church, that great temple of the Holy Spirit, to be built over all the earth. He wants His name to be glorified everywhere and by everyone. He wants the good news of salvation to reach the ends of the earth that all might hear about our Lord Jesus Christ. And this work of building up the great temple of the Lord, the New Testament temple, must be supported by all the members, by the whole church. And then we can see from our text, God takes this very seriously. You see, when Israel neglected to give the first part of their income to the Lord, the ministry of the temple suffered. The priests and Levites had to start gathering food themselves to support themselves and neglect their work at the temple. Furthermore, the tithes and contributions Israel brought actually belonged to the Lord in the first place. The Lord in His grace gave those tithes to the Levites to support their work, but it belonged to the Lord. Numbers 18 makes that clear. And so when Israel failed to bring in their contributions to the Lord, as in the time of Malachi, the Lord told them plainly, you are robbing me. That's quite shocking language, isn't it? Robbing God. Taking from what belongs to him. 
the people of Israel were guilty of doing precisely that, robbing the Lord. And the application for us is simple. We give the first and best of our income to the Lord for the building up of the church. So let me just ask you plainly, are you doing that? When you receive your income, do you, in the first place, and not secondly, certainly not lastly, do you firstly give to the Lord, also for the support of the building up of the church of Christ? There may be many reasons why we avoid giving first to God. I'm sure sure Israel had their reasons too. Perhaps they didn't understand that everything they had actually belonged to the Lord in the first place. When you work to make an income, it's easy to view it as simply yours, as belonging to you. Remember, ultimately it belongs to God. Perhaps Israel also failed to understand God's providence, that every good gift they received came down from heaven. And when God gives us something, we honor Him by first giving back to Him. Remember, God, by His providence, can take it all away if He wanted to. Perhaps the Israelites simply loved money and material things and did not want to give anything away. We have to ask, is that in our heart? And lastly, perhaps Israel simply failed to trust God to provide. You know, when you're strapped for cash and food, it can be tempting to, uh, to avoid doing this. After all, we might be afraid there will not be enough for, for us then. It appears from verse 11 that their crops were being ravaged by some pest, and that would make it doubly tempting to avoid giving to God the first of your income. What if there's not enough for me? However, notice also the encouragement and the promise the Lord gave Israel here. Encourage them to take a different approach, to act by faith. Listen to verses 10 and 11. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts. So God promised to provide. They could trust Him, put their faith in action by first giving to the Lord. And we can too. Perhaps an illustration is helpful here. Now, as I was working on this text, I was reminded of an old folk song that tells a story of a man traveling through a desert. And as he journeys on through the blazing heat, he develops a terrible thirst. He longs to drink even a mere drop of water. But lo and behold, eventually he comes across a hand-operated water pump. It's not a mirage. Someone has installed a water pump there in the desert. That's not all there is, however. By the pump, there's a small, or there's a metal bottle full of water. 
But there's also a note from a man called Desert Pete who owned the pump. And the note from Desert Pete said this, don't drink the water in this bottle. Instead, you need to pour the water from this bottle into the pump in order to prime it. And if you don't prime the pump, the pump will not work. But once the pump is primed, you can pump all the water you want. Trust me in this. You will be able to drink all the water you can hold, you can wash your face, you can cool your feet. Only make sure you leave the bottle filled with water for others who might come by so that they can do the same. This presented a test of sorts for the man journeying through the desert. He was incredibly thirsty. He wanted to just drink the water in that bottle. That guarantees him something to drink, does it not? Yes, priming the pump first might give him more water in the end, but what happens if he primes the pump and it doesn't work? He'll be left with nothing to drink at all. What should the man do? Well, in the song, Desert Pete turns out to be right. The man nervously primes the pump, but the pump ends up working and receives an overabundance of water, more than he needs. And that's sort of the test of faith giving first to God presents. Yes, giving first to God might sound risky, but it really is not. God has promised to provide. Now, we need to be careful here, of course. The Lord is not some kind of cosmic pump that needs to be primed to shower down all kinds of material prosperity. This is not some kind of health and wealth message I'm giving you here that if you give first to God, you're going to get all kinds of riches. No. But the test of faith remains. Giving first to God takes faith. But notice what the New Testament teaches us in this regard. What Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God. And all those things you might worry about, food, clothing, they will be given to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Or take Hebrews 13, verse 5, Keep yourselves from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The Lord will provide for his people. And the Lord ends here by telling Israel, After I bless you, when you act by faith, all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. We hear an echo of God's promise to Abraham. The nations would see how blessed the children of Abraham were, the people of the promise. The nations would see how wonderful the God of Israel was, supplying all their needs. And for us, as we support the cause of the gospel, the aim is that all the world would become children of Abraham by faith. So that in the ultimate offspring of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ, all people would find their blessing in the Lord. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing Psalm 81, the stanzas 1, 9, 11, and 14. <laughs>